You're listening to The Current Reality Podcast, where we talk about staying anchored in biblical reality within the current of modern culture. We are your hosts. I'm Michael Clary, and with me is Wade Thomas. We're both on staff at Christ the King Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which makes this podcast possible. If you would like to ask a question or give feedback, you can reach us at currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. Again, currentrealitypodcast at gmail.com. We answer listener questions at the end of every episode. And Wade can tell you in a second here about the conference we have coming up, so I'll save that promo. And now I'll just kick it over to you, Wade, to get us started with the episode, The Speech We Need. What do you got for us today? I feel like we should tell people once in a while that we're in the same room. I've gotten the... I've, I've Now as I listen to more podcasts, I've realized a lot of times these people are not in the same room. You are looking at me right now. Right, correct. With your piercing gaze yeah. and... I just... I, I was listening to a podcast about Boy Meets World and the three actors I found out like halfway through they're never in the same room it sounds like and I'm like but you guys sound like you're in the same room and I just want people to know we don't this isn't CGI or anything we're actually sitting together so I, was, I, I did a podcast uh, appearance with Josh Dawes the other day mm-hmm. uh, and I never had seen how this worked before but whenever I've seen other podcasts usually you have the host he's got this big microphone sounds great and then you have somebody else and they've got like their cheap, you know, right. Earbuds, headphones they bought at the airport. Yeah. Or like some of them nicer ones have AirPods, but it sounds clearly different. Um, with this Josh Dawes podcast, I had my microphone here, our podcasting microphone, and there is a website that he, uh, records through and I had to, uh, adjust. Basically it records on my computer and while I'm recording it, it will upload a high quality audio from my microphone into this cloud server and it will sync up with what he recorded. And then whenever you hear it, you hear high quality audio coming from both sides. In this case, two guys, two microphones sitting right across from each other. Well, that's more straightforward. Yeah. And so in a couple of weeks when we have uh, spoiler alert, Shia LaBeouf, from Transformers in studio to Shia LaBeouf. I, don't, I actually don't know how to say his name. <laughs> I, I've always heard it LaBeef. Yeah, maybe that's right. But he'll be really in studio. I'm just kidding. We're not going to have him. But yes, we are having a conference here in a couple of weeks. We want, John Stamos is he is he on the doctor? I would lo- if John Stamos came to this conference, you could double the admission, and I would buy tickets for myself and all my friends and family. Uh, so this conference is called Clear Speech for a Confused Age. It's going to be our first uh, of hopefully many King's Domain annual conferences. The reason why we're having it and the reason why you should come is what we're going to talk about today um, is that there is a, a glaring absence of plain spoken biblical counsel on issues of sexuality, on issues of race, uh, on issues of malehood, uh, manhood and womanhood, maleness and femaleness. Social justice, social stuff, justice, government overreach. Essentially, there's a there's a cluster of issues where uh, what, what Michael and I and others, you know, colloquially call as the cool kids table. There's a cluster of issues where they're sort of protected or insulated by the left that we as Christians either don't talk about because they are issues that would be uncomfortable to talk about, or when we do say that there is sin and righteousness over there in that arena of sexuality or race. or When we do point out what the Bible would say about some of these issues, we're very timid about it. Yeah. Um, and so this conference is going to have both laymen and pastors uh, offer some good 
practical insights on how to speak truthfully and lovingly, uh, but without the sort of timidity and fear that I think we're seeing in most of our mainstream evangelical institutions. Um, so let, let's, with that said, we'll, a couple of times we'll reference the conference here, especially as maybe some some of the guys who are going to be speaking at it uh, come to mind when we talk about some of these topics. But let's start with the, the episode today is called The Speech That We Need. And I want to give a few examples of the problem, why we need this particular kind of speech, plain spoken, um, very easy to understand, intelligible Christian counsel on these particular issues mm-hmm. of sexuality and race and social justice and things like this. So here's a, here's a just two Christian examples from pretty uh, mainstream voices. One is Christianity Today and the other is Beth Moore. I would imagine Beth Moore is the first or second most read and listened to female Christian in the United States, in the Western world. I mean, she's like it's hard, to, it's hard James. to imagine somebody being more famous, mm-hmm. more well-known amongst Christian women. I think of there, there's a lot in the more charismatic Pentecost. You have Joyce Meyer, and there's yeah. a lot of those. And I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing not, a Joyce Meyer T-shirt right now. Yeah, it gorgeous. looks nice on you. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> yes, but you're. Yeah, you're right. She's been. She's not been around as long as Joyce Meyer, but her influence is probably as big or bigger at this point. I think. And my my goal in giving you this example from from Beth's recent past is not to, I'm, I'm not trying to demonize her. I don't I don't want anybody who has a Beth Moore book on their bookshelf to run out and burn it or throw it in the trash can. And I'm and I'm not trying to, you know, I'm sure Beth Moore is an avid listener of this podcast and when she <laughs> listens, you're my sister in Christ. I'm not trying to demean you, but I am saying that what she did here we should not do. What I'm about to show you from her is an example of what we should not do. Yeah. So uh, three years ago, she had from a book, an older book that she'd written, she had some paragraphs removed, and she explained why. The book is called um, Praying God's Word, I believe. Yeah, Praying God's Word. So it's kind of a devotional book, as I understand it, that would you use the scriptures to inform your prayers. The concept is great. I'm sure a lot of the book was great. Maybe all the book was great. I know the I know what I'm about to read to you from the book was perfectly fine and orthodox and something I would say great. We need more of that on. Um, But she had it removed because of the pressure from what I'm calling the cool kids table. So here we go. Beginning um, on page 279 of Praying God's Word. Back uh, years ago, Beth had written, before we proceed to our scripture prayers for overcoming sexual strongholds, we are wise to address another deadly sexual assault of the evil one in our society homosexuality. I have wonderful news for anyone who has struggled with homosexual sin. God indeed can deliver you and anxiously awaits your full cooperation. Do not let Satan shame you into seeking forgiveness, fullness, and complete restoration in Jesus Christ. I know complete transformation is possible, not only because God's word says so, but because I have witnessed it with my own eyes. I know plenty of believers who have been set free from homosexuality. That's where I'll stop. It's plain English. It does sound great. Um, It's not even as hard-hitting as probably something that you or I would, if, if we were writing to Christians about how to pray about homosexuality, 
we would probably even use sterner language. Yeah. But I think that that's perfectly biblical. It's wonderful. If I if if somebody handed me that book today and said this just is hot off the presses, new Beth Moore book. Here's a couple paragraphs. What do you think? I'd be like, heck yeah, Beth's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot more solid than I. Yeah. Gave her credit for. Praise God. Yeah, 25 years ago, a book like that would have not raised an eyebrow. Nobody, Nobody would have thought anything it. of it. Yeah. So she had that part removed. Uh, and three years ago, 2019, here's what she wrote about why she had it removed on her blog. So I'm going to read from Beth on why she had what I just read to you removed from her book. For those needing further information on the removal of some of my words, not God's words, but my own, from the chapter I'd written on overcoming sexual strongholds in the prayer book, Praying God's Word, when I wrote PGW many years ago, I exceeded scripture and singled out same-sex sin as particularly satanic. Hit pause. I did not hear her call it I didn't even hear her use the word Satan or Satanic in what I just read. Oh, she did use the word Satan. Don't let Satan shame you into not seeking forgiveness. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But she didn't say it was particularly Satanic. No, she didn't say anything close to that. By the way, I'll go ahead and put my cards on the table. I don't know that I'd have a problem with it if she did. Yeah, You and I have talked about the particularly demonic nature of sexual perversion. But that notwithstanding, she did not. She did not say it was particularly demonic or satanic. The only time she referenced Satan was in saying that don't let him stop you from coming to the cross. It was, a, <laughs> it was an invitation to the gospel. Yeah. Um, so resuming up with her words here. As the years passed, I increasingly winced at what I'd conveyed. But the basic rule of thumb in authorship is that it's better not to go back and edit an old book, but rather let it just phase out and simply don't make the same mistake in the future. The problem was because PGW is a handbook and not a regular nonfiction book, it didn't phase out in the same way. I have had many years to test the fruit of what I wrote and have seen over and over again that numerous readers who have gone to this chapter with their struggles came to my words and proceeded no further. My words had kept them from God's words. That, to me, is a pretty Mm. serious stumbling block. I want to pause one more time. Let me first say, you need to hear me say this, listener. Our goal here is not to be like, gotcha, Beth. You know, yeah. I, I don't I have no interest. I have I have six children. We have a church to help manage and run here. I don't have the time to go catch every Christian leader every time they, you know, stumble and and hold it up and feel self-righteous right, about right. it. The reason it, we're using this pressure that she felt to amend a really good part of a probably pretty good book is that you're gonna feel this pressure. You listener working wherever you work, you pastor, preaching wherever you preach, you are going to feel this same pressure that Beth felt. Yes. And you're going to feel it in these particular arenas. And that those last two sentences there are, I think, what where she reveals the problem. Yeah, can, I'd like to comment on that. Yeah. What she, what she said is that people... So people are reading this book, and let's say somebody, their sin temptation is homosexual attraction. They're reading through their book. They're praying God's word through uh, any 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 number of things. Uh, trusting God with my job, trusting God with my future, trusting God for forgiveness. And then I get to this one part, and she said, "Homosexual sin is not beyond the reach of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Don't feel. Don't let Satan keep you from experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ. He died for that sin." 
repent and believe the gospel. That That's basically the message that I heard from what you read as a summary. Yeah, the only negative words about it were another deadly sexual assault of the evil one in our society. That was the only negative description of homosexuality okay. in it. The rest was come, come to the cross. Right. Don't, don't stay away. Don't a wait. true gospel message, uh, an appeal to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And she said that people reading that book, she's heard from countless readers, mm-hmm. a number of readers, so many, in fact, that she felt compelled to edit the book and to remove that paragraph. But there were so many people that they got to that and they could not read further. So if somebody in their particular sin is so fragile and so, I would say, proud and hard-hearted that they could not hear, hear the most uh, uh, earnest appeal to believe the gospel and to receive forgiveness, if, they, if that stops them in their tracks, then what good is it to just remove that altogether because you just hit their idol? Right. You just you just ran right up into the thing that they need to hear very clearly and loudly. I'm like, you cannot walk with Christ if you do not deal with this thing. Right. But she says, well, if 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 I need to make space for that idol for them to keep reading the book, then I want to do that. I only I'm only even cut the section out of the book. Yeah, it's literally the opposite of what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Or the woman at the well. Yes. Right. So let so the rich young ruler he comes to the yeah both of those uh, the, the woman at the well was uh, divorced several times and then now she living had five with the man husbands, with, right said? five husbands and then I think the man she's living with now is not her husband the rich young ruler I think is a story we're all familiar with so let me just real quick explain how that's what Michael just described you have this guy who is very wealthy he puts his uh, sense of worth and his his hope and his you know, joy and happiness in his possessions. He comes to Christ. He says, I've done all these things that you just told me are the the law and the prophets. I've kept them since my youth. The book of Mark says Jesus looks at him and loves him. Mm-hmm. And in that love that he has for him, he tells them, there's one thing you lack, go and sell all that stuff. Jesus identifies his idol. His idol is his wealth and his possessions. Jesus identifies that and tells him, that's where I'm going to press, right there at that yes. idol. He doesn't say, Okay, you've you've met, you've come with me up to page twenty here, so that's enough for now, and we'll get to the rest later. He actually brings the thing to a crisis point, yeah, and applies his gospel there. That doesn't mean that every single cup of coffee you have with an unbeliever, that every single conversation needs to expose the idol of the heart of the person you're talking to, or else it wasn't faithful. But it does mean if you are what Michael just said, if if you are trying to remove the very offense that the person needs. They need to have their idol offended. They need yeah. to be brought to repentance. If, you're, if your gospel presentation, if your Christian ministry means that you have to remove that offense, it's not actually Christian ministry. That's right. It's self-help. It's, it's, uh, it's certainly, it's flattery probably. It will make a person feel good about their uh, closeness to God, but it's not actual mm-hmm. Christian proclamation of the gospel. Yeah, I I don't know Beth's heart why she would what motivated her ultimately what she her stated motivation if taken at face value it is patently false. Right. There I, may be other motivations at work and I would imagine if I were in her shoes I'm thinking this could affect book sales. Right. And I would too and Michael and I have both said this on the podcast and I can tell you sitting right here it's true for both of us right now. We are tempted by this same thing. Absolutely. We are tempted to if I say this, uh, I'll have less 
presence on social media. If I say this, I might get fired. If I, say, I just left the modern secular, I basically worked at Dunder Mifflin, if you've ever seen The Office. <laughs> and, I, and I loved it. It was a great company. I and loved, who were you? You were Stanley. Is that like your job? If I, if I, yeah, I would love it if I were Stanley. I'm guessing a lot of people probably thought I was Dwight. But <laughs> I could see, I, I could see you. You have a Dwight shrewdness yeah, about you. I could see that. That's that's the worst insult that anyone has ever. That's when you say false. Time. Yeah, I am not like good. Dwight. <laughs> Bears beats Battlestar, Battlestar Galactica. Galactica. Um, <laughs> I have watched that right, show. Yes, you have. So we can talk about that, and we can talk about like two other TV shows. Um, I, I, I want you to understand we are not. Uh, we are like you if you are tempted by this, and we're like what I'm guessing. Uh, you know what? I don't think it's helpful to keep trying to psychoanalyze somebody I'll never meet. So I'm not going to try to jump into Beth's head. But I can tell you, I would be tempted to do this. If I had a book that had a pretty clear proclamation of uh, homosexual sin, and I needed that book to sell, and I also just liked being liked, and I liked being admired, and I liked being followed on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and I and I liked being invited to conferences, and I didn't like making people who seemed sweet angry at me. If yeah. I liked all those things, I would be tempted to remove it too, and that removing it and that temptation are sinful. Yeah, they're sinful. Yeah. I am tempted to sin when I am tempted to soften Scripture to accommodate somebody else's idol. That is sin. Yeah. So that's that's what we wanted you to hear. Uh, here was just that first example from Beth Moore. I've got one more. Uh, this is from a Christianity Today blog called The Better Samaritan. It's from about a month ago, February of 2023. Um, the title is Dear White Brothers and Sisters, Let's Acknowledge Our Defensiveness and Learn From It. It's by Dorothy Little Greco. She frames the article as uh, how she would get into arguments with her husband, and he had to learn to apologize for his defensiveness in order for them to get anywhere in these in these arguments and these disputes within that framing she then says basically like we are supposed to do that as white people um i i hate even saying we because one thing i've tried to point out to people before is there's no like white community yeah <laughs> I, I sit in a room full of white people or let's say i'm sitting in a room full of uh you know people from the middle east and there's one other white guy I'm telling you right now, I'm not looking across the room at that one white guy and being like, hey, what's up? You yeah. and me, we got something in common. Like, that's, it's not a thing. <laughs> Irish is a thing. Italian is a thing. German is a thing. But it's not like I have you, – you pick some white guy in rural Alabama – the number of things he and yeah. I have in common. There's not some automatic solidarity. Exactly. With other the people way there purely. is with, yeah, with, with actual like ethnicities and mm -hmm. cultures. But, you know, white is such a, it's like a skin color and it encompasses most of Europe. Uh, it's, it's, there's not a kinship there. But regardless, she basically says we as people with this color skin need to uh, repent of our defensiveness so that we can help society move towards racial healing and harmony. And Christianity Today has has no problem publishing this and no problem giving this sort of thought space in their website. So let me just read to you one, one little bit here. She says, If we immediately dismiss the concerns or hurts of our brothers and sisters of color or encourage them to move on, we have inv invalidated their reality and missed an opportunity to offer empathy, admit culpability, and work towards change. Okay, can you say that? Can you say that those last things? Yes. If we encourage them to move on, etc., we have invalidated their reality and missed an opportunity to offer empathy, 
admit culpability and work towards change. Okay. And there's a lot of assumptions in that that I'm sure you want to jump yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I actually looked up the article while you were talking about it so I could zero in on that phraseology because there are a lot of assumptions there. So going through this sentence, if we immediately dismiss the concerns or hurts of our brothers and sisters of color or encourage them to move on. So there's an assumption there that anytime a person says, I am hurt right. with some racial component to it, that if you challenge that or if you, if you don't automatically acknowledge it, then you have invalidated their reality. So the assumption there is that the other person's emotional state is the reality that must be validated. Right. And if you don't validate it, then you are wronging them in some way. To do so is to miss an opportunity to offer empathy, which, sure, there's a that would be an opportunity to offer empathy, but to admit culpability. That is, there's, there's an assumption there that of like a systemic racism, mm -hmm. which, which would mean that there is a, we are just by the virtue of being white, you and I and any other white person is culpable for participating in some system that keeps persons of color, black people down. It, right. it, it's, it's automatically oppressive. So there's a, there's a critical race theory idea that is baked right. into that sentence. She is exhorting us to believe that white people are culpable and black people are victims, period. Right. Black or Hispanic, I, I assume. You, you are the victim, period. The white person is culpable, period. That's the assumption in this Christianity Today blog. Yeah, and so let's say that, let's say you're, we're talking with another black person in this encounter that she's describing. If that's their reality, but let's say that that isn't actually true in their case. They, they're, it assumes that whatever they think is true or whatever they feel to be true, whatever oppression they perceive must be validated. Right. And that any attempt to say, let's say that it isn't valid and you might want to, or you, there's, there's something that you would want to contribute to that perception that is, that is an oppressive act. Yeah. You're, you're failing them and you are, you're, you're failing to admit culpability. You're not, uh, working toward change, you're, you're doing more harm, you're adding to the problem. So the baseline Christian virtue here is when, when a black person or some other uh, racial minority says they feel some way, the automatic response is to validate it. Right, which is why I think she and others in this kind of tribe use that word empathy. Because empathy is different from sympathy. There's great stuff by Joe Rigney on this. Um, if you want to watch the man rampant episode between him and Doug Wilson, but I mean, just I can give it to you in a couple of sentences. Basically, well, I want to ask you. Go ahead and do that, but I want to ask you a question when you're done. Sure. Traditionally, sympathy uh, is the word that we would use for like I have a posture of mercy towards you. I am suffering with you. Sympathos. You suffer. Suffer with. And I, yeah. So, but what it's not doing is. You're drowning in the river, so I'm going to jump into the river and drown with you, and we can drown together. Yeah. Right? It's you're grieving, you're suffering, you're, and I'm going to suffer with you while also keeping my feet planted in reality and in objectivity so as to be able to offer you help and stay faithful to God. If somebody comes to me and they are weeping, I can't assume that their tears are holy. Yeah. But I should love them in their tears. 
Empathy assumes their tears are holy. It assumes the thing that you are suffering from, you are, you are valid in your suffering. You were wronged. Somebody did absolutely wrong you. And so empathy is foolish. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, that's a, I want to make a comment, then I'll ask you my question. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, my comment on that is that that is the spirit of our age, a therapeutic age that we live in now. There is a, whatever feeling that we feel, that we need to validate the feeling, and and it is considered wrong and abusive even to say what you're feeling now is not congruent with with reality. Yeah. So let's say somebody is all worked up and they're upset and crying and they're just curled up in a ball, you know, under you know, under a blanket and they're just so upset. You say, what's, what's upset? And I'm like, you know, I, I bought a scratch off ticket and I didn't win a thousand dollars like mm. I was hoping. Then mm. would you say, oh man, that is so hard. I am so sorry. What can I do to help mm. you? You know, <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's, we would, we would rightly think that is an absurd thing to be upset about. And it's an extreme example, but this does happen all the time. If, if somebody, you know, if, if somebody says something to another person that, hurts their feelings, but it's a true thing that might even be a true thing that needed to be said, um, that you might feel hurt by that, but that the feeling of hurt does not require the conclusion that the other person hurt you right. and that what they did was wrong. Here's my question. Do you think that whenever people use sympathy or empathy as a word, to what extent do you think they're aware of the distinction? I ask that because... Only when I heard that distinction drawn and explained by Joe Rigney did I realize, oh, these are two different things. I had always used them as synonyms and didn't really know that the word empathy is a relatively new word. Yeah. Whereas the word sympathy goes back, you know, it's it's an ancient word. Most people aren't. I don't want, if there's a, you know, Christian mom listening to this podcast and she's been using the word empathy for 10 years since she first saw it on Ellen or whatever. I don't want her <laughs> to feel bad. Like I'm not trying to make, uh, it's not sinful to mistakenly use a new word that other people are, that, that it was it was built to do some nefarious purpose, which I think empathy probably, if it wasn't, if the word wasn't actually constructed for a nefarious purpose, I think it's being used at the academic level and at the Well, I think philosophical- the purpose might have been nefarious, even though the person who started using the word this way didn't mean it to. Fair enough. You know what I mean? Like, but they were not thinking, oh, I, I want to deceive by using this word. But they're trying to communicate something s- distinct from sympathy. Yes, yes exactly. And so th- so my point is, at the, at the elite level, at the academic level, at the philosophical level, at the culture-shaping level, I think the word is garbage and should never be used. If there's a regular Joe who's or Jane who's listening to this podcast and they've been using the word, I do not want you to pull your hair out and wear sackcloth and ashes and, you know, rend <laughs> But if garment. you do, let us know. We right. can empathize right. with your pain. Right. We can, uh, we to can put validate a, your hurt. To put a bow on it, <laughs> the, the word is used to basically... Uh, communicate that somebody's feelings are valid, period, and that I need to enter into their feelings and accept their validity as an act of love and goodness, period. And those are false ideas. I tell my kids all the time, it's a Thomas family proverb, your feelings lie to you. And we also say a lot, your feelings aren't your Bible. Everyone has a Bible, and a lot of people, it's their feelings. But when you're a Christian... You know, that's false. My feelings yeah. should not govern. Your feelings are not authoritative. That's right. They don't, they, they cannot, there are a hundred times a day, at least, my feelings will tell me so-and-so wronged me, or I don't usually get this, this uh, candid, but what the heck. Michael and I, just before we started, we were 
he could tell he could tell I was a little off. And I I had decided that this thing that was happening inside my head last night and this morning that I was rattling, I, I had decided, I think I, I had landed on what the truth of this situation that was bothering me was. And that talking about it would probably not be productive, good, holy. So I just told him, well, I don't I don't really think talking about it would be good. Now, if I operated as though feelings were reality and everything I feel was legitimate, I would have gone ahead and we would have had a conversation that I don't think would have done any good because most of what I was feeling was false. Most of what yeah. I was feeling was sinful and selfish mm. and bitter. Yeah, okay. So I I think what you're saying is a I would I would label that self-control, which is a fruit of the spirit. Self-control extends to our feelings. There's there's lots of proverbs about self-control. A man who lacks self-control is like a city without walls. Uh, a man, a, a person who doesn't have self-control cannot regulate his anger. Um, he's going to do damage in his life. When you set up an environment where you are always validating whatever feeling a person happens to have, then you end up validating the fruit of those feelings. And so I think is a good what you described. I, the, it's funny that you brought that up because I was thinking of that while you were talking. Really, I was like, we were just talking about this, and what I witnessed in your words was, you have exercised some self control. You were troubled by something. I could see it in your face. I asked you about it, and you're like, basically said this. This is is not real, and so I'm going to. We don't need to talk about it because you are putting it to death. And talking about it could resurrect it. I do the same thing in different ways. There are times when I'm upset about something and I feel it. And the feeling itself may not be something I can control. Yeah. So it's like I might feel angry and I'm like, I'm angry. I'm just mad. And I can't, there's not a switch that I can flip that will shut off the anger. Nevertheless, I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm hurt. I'm offended. Whatever the feeling is, my rational mind can identify that is not true. That is not congruent with reality. I'm feeling something out of sync with reality. Yeah. So what I need to do is to discipline that feeling. At the very least, as long as I continue to feel it, I have to tell myself, this isn't real. You are feeling something that's a fantasy. Michael, believe what's true. Yeah. Believe what's real. And I, eventually, my heart, my feelings will catch up with my mind but in the meantime, I have to be very careful in those moments that I don't act on the emotion. Yeah. Because I feel I'm, I'm a feeler. I've, I've, I have deep passions. I feel things deeply. That's my strength. I mean, you weep during the podcast. Sometimes. I'm crying right now. I've, I have got a bucket of tears right. sitting under my desk it's right now. <laughs> yeah. But, but as a feeler, that's, that is also a vulnerability. Yeah. That I got to be careful that I don't feel myself into, you know, some fantasy that isn't real. Yeah. So to put a bow on this, I guess, sorry, I already said that once. We're going to definitely put a bow on it now, and then we'll... Why don't I'll, we I'll put a bow this. on it? I'll tie, I, I don't know. Bows are pretty effeminate. Can we think of something? I'm going to put a bullet in the head of this steer <laughs> right now. And <laughs> That was uh, so violent, though, Wade. <laughs> I know, it was. I'm hurt. Yeah, you hurt me just now. Um, your feelings are, feelings are not bad by any stretch, but sure. they are not inerrant. Empathy assumes feelings are inerrant. Empathy assumes feelings are infallible. Empathy okay. is... Listener, write that down. <laughs> Man, Empathy. you've got a gift. You just have a great way of, 
of, of capturing things in short, tweetable ideas. Empathy assumes feelings are inerrant. Yeah. Sympathy. Uh, yeah, so sympathy would... Um, Sympathy would have us suffer with someone. It would have us acknowledge their feelings. It would have us consult their feelings. It would have us be aware of their feelings. And care about them. And care about them. But sympathy would not have us assume the inerrancy of the person's feelings. Yeah. You have a four-year-old child. Right. Crying over uh, because the the head of the doll is turned the wrong way. Yeah. You know those feelings are not. Exactly. So the way that this article here, that what we just read to you, which is incredibly typical, I, I did not try to find something that was uh, obscure. Like this is a very typical article of the kind that you're going to find on, I, I still read Christianity Today, even though there's a lot of this stuff that I think is incredibly weak and problematic. But you're going to find a lot of this on Christianity Today. You're going to find a lot of this in the mainstream evangelical world these days. And the reason why this one in particular I wanted to bring up is we can't have plain spoken biblical counsel on the issues of race or really just, I hate to say it, guys, but with black people if we are going to be this timid. So there's a, there's a, the typical right now, I think, uh, evangelical pastor in America, the second he would have to confront a black person on his or her sin, his palms are going to be sweating. Yeah. And he's going to have a million articles like this jostling in his mind to get to the, mm-hmm. the front of his mouth so that everything he says starts with some level of empathy for your racial suffering. And the reality is, as the shepherd of that person, irrelevant of whether they're black or white, yes, as a shepherd of that human soul, you have got to shovel this garbage and give them plain spoken biblical counsel. That what you just said is is gold. This is true with with black people. This is also true with women. Yeah, very much so. Because there is an assumption within our evangelical world, and it's it's not stated out loud. Nobody would ever say or write into some creed or statement of faith what I'm about to say, but it is nevertheless the spirit of our age in evangelicalism. We believe that women are more virtuous than men. Yeah. And, and it's false. It's false. And we believe black people are more virtuous than white people. Yeah. And that it, it takes a different shape there because we believe that white people are incapable of virtue because whiteness is the disease. It is yeah. the original sin. And so what you did, I think was great, was put it into a pastoral context, and that speaks my language because... I've been living this for 15 years, and I have had to work through. I've, I have spoken to people with articles in my head that mm-hmm. I've read that I had to, I still need to detox from, where I know if I'm speaking to a woman, I need to be extremely careful that I don't come across as misogynistic. Uh, if I'm speaking to a black person or some racial minority, especially somebody that is, they're very animated by this ideology yeah. and worldview. I've got to be super careful that I'm like, hey, I, I know I'm white, and I know that um, that I'm an oppressor. I really and, shouldn't even be your pastor. Well, okay, <laughs> I, I've I've been told that. I've I've been told by uh, by there was a young black man in my church, and he told me once, Michael, you can't pastor black people. It took me a while to to detangle what he meant. I initially thought 
was he was saying that I lack the skills. You, Michael Clary. Michael Clary, I lack the skills to adequately pastor black people, which might mean there is there are unique things that um, contextually, just like you know, if I move to Japan right. and I minister there, like, hey, you can't minister to Japanese people. You don't know our culture. And I think to an extent, I'm like, yeah. I'd... Can I just say there real quick? That's demonstrably false. You are pastoring black people right now. We have black people in our church. Sure, you sure. You pastor yeah. everyone well. That's demonstrably false. Yeah. Now, I would say it's I, – I can't pastor black people who are – who who have bought into an ideology that's incompatible with the truth of scripture, <laughs> but but, that, but that's a different issue, right? That's not that's I not can't pastor an, white people that exactly. Do that too. That's not an inherent feature of their melanin level, right? It's an ideology that they've bought into that distances them from the gospel, and as a representative of the Christian gospel, that that will be represented in my ministry to them. What I what I realized though is that what I think he meant was that Michael, you are a white man. I am a black man, and therefore I well I am removing myself from your pastoral care because you're white. That's what he meant, and that's what he did. And as I've watched the trajectory of his life since then, he has he has gone all manner of woke uh, and the most dangerous kinds. And it, yeah. it, it breaks my heart because I was very close with this man. I loved him dearly. He was like a a little brother, if not a son, to me. But it, it got to the point to where his ideology uh, got his ideology prevented him from relating to me as a pastor. He's like, I cannot trust you because you're white. Your whiteness is the obstacle. And what happens in our day now is that what is called whiteness, a lot of times, not perfectly, but a lot of times, it maps onto the biblical worldview. Yeah, yeah. And so I think what we what we want to bring to your attention, listener, is the assumption that there are several assumptions permeating the American landscape right now in regards to race. One of them is that if there's any disparity between this guy with this skin color and this guy with this skin color, the disparity must be a result of racism. It cannot be a result of any other factor. Right. It cannot be a result of uh, more people with this skin color having two parent families than this than the people of this skin color. It can't be. And even if it is that, the, the fact that there are more one parent families over here with this skin color is itself a result of racism. So that assumption that any disparity is a result of racism, that is something that needs plain spoken, plain spoken biblical truth applied to it. It needs to be uh, confronted with plain spoken. And at the, so there's, there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those types of things. I remember sitting with a guy one time who said he was worried that um, he was worried about getting home safely every night. And this was a Christian man who I love. Um, and I just remember thinking, are, are, do you actually feel that way? What, what do you mean? Meaning he was afraid that he was going to get killed by a police officer. So this is a black man? This is a black man who, he was, he was worried that he was going to get murdered by a police officer, um, like on a daily basis. Wow. And I mean, I've heard that. I, yeah. But... And, and I mean, it's an intelligent, good man. And I just, I was, I was stunned. I didn't have the thoughts or the ability or the quickness of mind to just help him think realistically about what, what his odds are of actually being murdered by a police officer yeah. and that there are f- thousands of things he should, that he would do well to think more about than that. Um, what th- if you had spoken plainly? Exactly. If I had spoken plainly and said, listen, let, let's, let's sit here for 15 minutes right now and look up how, how many... I want to reassure you, brother, 
that you are not, you are almost certainly not going to get murdered by a police officer. Like your odds of getting murdered by a police officer are probably approximate, approximate to my odds of dying of like a bee sting or something. It's, it's not yeah. going to happen. Any murder is tragic and we should convict and yeah. I'll, I'll put my theonomy cards on the table. I, I believe in execution for murders. If a police officer murders a black man, he should be executed after a fair trial. So I, I'm not saying murder is acceptable, but I am saying to to sit down and have this conversation with this guy where I say, what you just said is way over the top. Your fear, if you really have it, is not congruent with reality. Yeah. To do that would have been the most uncomfortable conversation I would have had that entire calendar year. <laughs> and nobody wants to do it. And we're we're trying to advocate for that. Yes. The thesis that are this is in my own words not not your words but the thesis here underlying this episode is that we cannot do christian ministry we cannot live as christians if we are driven by the reactions of other people when the emotions of other people their perceptions particularly where there there's some disconnect with the christian scripture or christian worldview we cannot we cannot live and inhabit and minister within their world, um, meaning that I'm speaking as a pastor here. What you just described, if I were overly concerned with how he would feel, I would fail him as a pastor. Exactly. I would not minister to him. Would well. not be loving to him. I would not love him. I would be harming him or at least being unhelpful by not speaking to so the foot on the bank using the mm-hmm. the empathy thing be I'm going to jump right in there with you man that's terrible to feel that afraid all the time gosh I, I, let me pray for you and that you'll get home safe tonight right that's empathy that's that's totally lit inhabiting their world even the part of the world that isn't true sympathy would be brother I hate that you feel that way let me let me speak some reality here uh offer, let me offer you a perspective that's my foot on the bank. Right. And I would say, let, can we look up how often this happens? And sure, there are, there, there, racism exists. There is, uh, there are bad cops. These things happen. But that, to, to say that that is the most likely scenario, there's a distortion going on that is fueled by a false ideology that we want to speak plainly to. Yeah. And I, when, when you have that foot on the bank, you're reaching into the river because you love the guy. And the guy needs to know that you love him. I've, Michael and I have talked about this before. The easiest way to get somebody to believe and feel that you love them is to just love them. Yeah. And if you love them, it'll find ways of spilling out in your body language and your tone of voice. So if I could do this, if I could do this conversation again in a year or a couple of years or whatever with a guy like this, I would want to love him, genuinely look him in the eye and love him and want his eternal good and his good in this life. And I'd want to free him from an irrational fear. And I'd also just want to be his friend and and be a part of his life. And then as I'm reaching into that riverbank, say, listen, this is an irrational fear. It's not congruent with reality. Let me talk to you a little bit about it. But let's also talk about where is this coming from? What this irrational fear did not just... Yeah, come from nowhere, and the and the sad. Sorry, did I, I cut you no, off? no, no. That's pretty much it. Yeah, the the sad thing is that the man or woman who does that, what you just described, 
they are doing the truly loving thing, and they are much more likely to be accused of being hateful, of being cruel, of their yeah. being white privilege, or or whatever the whatever the pejorative is, uh, being hateful, bigoted, whatever. And and that's that's the thing that I think is the muscle that Christians need to exercise. Yeah, we, we need, need to, to get accustomed to moving into uncomfortable places and conversation with people. And it's, it, it's not easy. Um, could even be something that a person would practice and really think through, how do I want to say this? Because I'm saying something that I've, I'm not accustomed to saying, because I'm so used to accommodating. Yeah. We need to love our neighbors more and love how our neighbors see us less. Yeah. All right. So, um, that's that's a couple of tastes of crazy here. Let, let's dive a little, uh, little more deeply into the issue. There is a pervasive desire in mainstream Protestant Christianity. So here I have in mind uh, evangelical, inst- I mean, uh, uh, institutions of uh, proclamation of the gospel and evangelism, like crew. Uh, I also have in mind publications like Christianity Today, publishing houses like Crossway. Gospel um, coalition. Gospel coalition. They're within. I would say educational institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Seminaries. Absolutely. So you've got, you've got some you know pretty stalwart educational institutions. There's probably some stalwart examples of each of these categories, but there are some really really solid seminaries. But on the whole, I think whether it's Gordon Conwell or Wheaton or any any big name in in American higher education, um, in Christian American higher education, you're going to see this disease, this pathogen of desiring to be admired by the most influential and choice people in American life. That's what I'm calling the cool kids table. Meaning no one is scared of offending in these, in these big evangelical Protestant Christian institutions. No one is really scared of offending the coal miner in West Virginia who voted for Donald Trump. Nobody is really worried about offending the, the white guy in a trailer somewhere in rural Florida. Those guys don't have clout. Right. They have no cultural cachet. They are deplorables. Right. They are easily ignored because they don't have any influence, culturally speaking. Exactly. We are worried about offending the the white-collar people, the people who write for and read The Atlantic and The New York Times and The Washington Post. We're worried about offending the kinds of people that you would see if you would walk into a trendy coffee shop somewhere in the upscale yeah. neighborhood in your city. Those are the folks we are worried about offending. Um, and it is... It is not a Christian virtue to let that fear govern my speech. Right. The coal miner in West Virginia can't really hurt you. Right. But somebody that writes for the New York Times, they can hurt you. And that's why you'll see uh, a couple examples. Once you start seeing these, I think the pattern becomes inescapable. Um, We could all imagine a full-throated, 100 miles an hour, full-on assault on racism in Christianity today, something like why racism is from the pits of hell. I mean, I mean, it, it could be as yeah. as hard-hitting as you want, and I think Christianity Today would still publish something like that, why racism is satanic, why racism is demonic. And amen, by the way, racism is demonic, I believe. Um, but imagine that same thing applied to another. So even, even a really, really bad, horrible sin that we all agree on in evangelicalism, like abortion. Could you see Christianity Today publishing an article called Why Abortion is Demonic? Yeah, no, no. I, do, I don't. And and certainly not, not on a, a sin that's even more protected by the cool kids table like homosexuality. There is no way 
on this beautiful God's green earth that they would ever publish an article called why homosexuality is demonic or why homosexuality is evil or why it is, it is, but, but they don't, they, why don't they say exactly? It? That's, they, that's the question or that's, that's what we're driving. That's at. what I'm driving at. We punch hard in one direction and we punch really soft, if at all, in the other direction. And uh, a funny example of this is how, and there are myriad of reasons for this. We could get into them if you want, but we don't have to. The, the illustration will hold even if we don't spend time on it. But you can imagine on Father's Day what the sermon's probably going to be. Some Guys, version of, get man your up, act together. get up off the couch. That's the Father's Day sermon is get your act together. Yeah. On the Mother's Day sermon, would you ever in a million years hear something like, get your act together, here's how to be a better woman? It's going to yeah. be... If it's, no, I mean, right. if it's on Mother's Day, it's. I mean, if it's about Mother's Day, it's going to be. Yeah, in that situation, the the, it's not like the mothers have this cultural power, but they they do, they do occupy a space that is favored by the left because right. our, our society is feminist. Right. Exactly. And so we we are very afraid of confronting the sins of women. We are ready, rip ready, and let's go to to attack sins of men, especially of white men. And I, I think um, that that's not a sign of godliness. It's not a sign of like uh, us us picking up on some historical wrong that we're trying to correct. I think it's a sign of us being governed by fear of the left. We are governed yeah. by fear of the left. Let me uh, try to pull back a couple. See if we can identify a couple streams of motivation for doing that. I, th- I think there, there's a the desire for admiration, which you've identified, and that. That that uh, strikes a note with me. Me too. Uh, I want to be loved, respected, admired. Uh, fear of man is a, is a is a constant temptation. I think there is a just a desire for comfort. Like I don't want to put myself in positions that will be uncomfortable or difficult. Um, I think there is a desire for a lot of, a lot of people that occupy these institutional places. They know they ascend the ranks. If you can ascend the ranks, that means you're smart, and you're smart enough to be able to see how the game works. Mm. You and I are not stupid. Mm-hmm. We know that if I wanted to ascend the ranks at any given institution, you gotta, you gotta kiss the ring. You got to, mm-hmm. you gotta appeal to the right people. You gotta speak the language. You gotta be loyal. You have to be sycophantic, even like that's a big word. You gotta, you gotta be a brown noser, and that. That I, I think that is these are all ways, and because at some at some places in this hierarchy, the levers of power tend to lean left because it's going to be accommodationist to the world, and I think the reason why is it's like the whenever there's nobody a few, sometimes there's this thought that when harm comes my way or potential harm comes my way, and I am now faced, okay, gun to your head. Do you follow Jesus or not? Do you believe in Jesus or not? You, most Christians think I would be faithful in that moment. Great. But there are other times when you are choosing to step into an arena where harm might come your way. It's like you're inviting trouble by speaking out on something that is against the the current mm-hmm. of modern reality. Mm. Uh, things are moving in that direction, and you're speaking against it. Now you're asking for trouble. So an institution is going to preserve itself by drifting with along with the culture by not making waves because they don't want to draw fire. A person who wants to ascend the ranks, they want to get to the upper echelon to become a seminary professor or a fellow or a president, or they want to 
right for Christianity today, or they want to be such a respected Christian that you get an op-ed space in the New York Times as, as an evangelical voice. You have you get there because you've played the game, and your voice suits the interests of that organization, that news media company. I think all of these motivations are in play. Fear of man at the street level is probably the most common, and I know that that's been one that has that has plagued me and that I personally am trying to repent of, and I, I think I've heard you say similar things. Yeah, so a lot, a lot of our listeners, um, well, I don't know. I've never looked at the demographics. Let me just make an assumption here. I'm going to guess we've got a f- few more guy listeners than girl listeners. Few more men listeners than women listeners. Maybe I'm wrong, but regardless, I don't talk. know. A lot of the, I've heard a lot of feedback from women. I don't know what. The okay. Break, well, this would apply. There's no way to know the all, breakdown. All you women are going to be raising sons, hopefully at some point. So the Lord will bless you and fill your quiver with children. Uh, I want to. I want to talk to ambitious guys here for just a second in in regards to what you just said. So I, for a good number of years before I started working for the church, I had a a good job at a very good company, sane company. I mean, just I could I could not speak highly enough of of the, the guy who inherited this company and just loves his people is a good man. Um, I, I loved working for him and I loved working there. That said, knowing where we live in 2023, knowing how things happen, I knew my influence was probably going to be capped at a certain point. And I had to kind of build that into our expectations about our lifestyle. So, so literally, I bought a cheaper house than I probably needed to. I bought cheaper cars than I probably needed to. And I just kind of... You think your Mercedes is a cheaper car? Yeah, absolutely. My 2023 Mercedes-Benz... No, please. I'm, I am driving a 2002 Toyota Sienna. And I don't care that I just doxed my car because nobody listening to this is going to want to steal that thing. <laughs> my son's name is carved into the side. I came out... Your with, own son keyed your car. Yes, I can attest. It. I have he, seen it and he it's He carved hilarious. his name into it and then I couldn't spank him because he'd also carved three crosses into it. So it was like <laughs> evangelism and vandalism. It was evangelism. Um, oh, that's great. So... I, I kind of I, I I want to talk to you if you're 25 if you're 30 if you're if you're 18 if you're you know just sort of beginning your career path I I want you to build into your thinking your compensation and the the heights that you attain might be capped if you're a faithful Christian mm-hmm. I don't want you to assume that you're going to be able to to reach the higher echelons of power and compensation at your hospital or at your Fortune 500 company or at your engineering firm if you are a faithful Christian who doesn't try to hide what he believes and what he what is good for the world you it might be capped if you a good example of this a uh, couple of weeks ago was that coach at Texas Tech so this is yep. a head coach <clears throat> of a division 1 school i think 3 4 years ago Texas Tech was in the title game uh, in the in NCAA March Madness is a is a really big school it's also in the bible belt so yeah. I mean, if you if you if you're gonna get in the kind of trouble I'm about I'm about to describe in Texas, in Texas then yeah. game over. Um, so he's the head coach at Texas Tech, and he had a kid that he wanted to coach and teach a little bit about um, authority. And so he quotes Ephesians five and Ephesians six was I, I think what he had in mind, uh, where wives are to submit to their husbands, uh, children are to submit to their parents, and slaves are to submit to their masters. He quoted it, meaning. And I don't know what like speech surrounded it, but I'm I'm sure it was fine. I, I read what this guy said. He's not some yeah. closet clan member or something. Right. Come on, um, he he's basically saying 
God made the world in this way that you're going to have to submit to authority once in a while, and it's for your good. Well, he got forced to resign or canned, one of the two. He doesn't have a job there. He doesn't have a job anymore. And so um, Danny Aiken, one of uh, a pretty big... Southeastern Baptist Theological yeah. Seminary president. And, and and a guy who's a regular evangelical, I mean, Bible-believing Christian, I'm sure has had much, what, what I would largely describe probably as a faithful ministry. He's going to be in heaven. He's probably done a lot of people a lot of good. He tweeted something out that was very sensible and sane, uh, kind of like Beth Moore writing some paragraphs that were pretty sane. Uh, he, he tweeted out something along the lines of, here's cancel culture at work again. Yeah, I'm looking it up here. Um, Keep going. He, he tweets out something along the lines of, here's cancel culture at work again. Coach quotes the Bible and gets fired uh, or forced to resign. And hey, go, 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 Danny. That's awesome that, that you identify that. I'm not saying that you have to tweet every time cancel culture goes crazy. But I'm saying if you're going to tweet about it, call it what it is. Mm-hmm. The guy got canned for quoting the Bible. We should stick by him and praise the Lord that he did so and call it crazy. Um, but unfortunately, 48 hours after tweeting that, then Danny came out with an apology. He backs off. I apologize for, uh, the tweet. I ask forgiveness, something along the lines. It was a pretty... Yeah, I I found the first one here, and then I can look up the second one. Here's the first tweet. There's a a CNN article where Texas Tech men's basketball coach steps down following his suspension for, oh, the headline is, for quote, racially insensitive comment. So he had to step down. And the racially insensitive comment, read the article on CNN, I did. The racially insensitive comment was Ephesians 6. Bible's verse, right. Bible verses. Right. Okay. So Danny Aiken rightly sees this. He tweets the article with this comment. The insanity of the cancel culture strikes again. The coach was quoting the Bible. Amazing, but no longer surprising. Right. That was Danny Aiken's first response, and it's the right one. And before you read, or maybe we don't even have it, but in the apology, it's not like Danny says, I didn't realize the guy after doing that said, you know, some vulgar word about black people or something. Like, there is no, like, wider context where the coach was quoting, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan or something ridiculous. It was, he was, <laughs> he was just, he was quoting the Bible. That's the wider context. The wider context, he was talking like a coach and wove Ephesians five and six into his talking like a coach. Yeah. But what happened was, we all know this. I, I can say this with confidence. Some version of this happened. He got emails, he got texts, he got, he got communications that were telling him his words were hurtful, that was telling him his words caused pain, that were telling him his words were unwise, that were telling him his words were not Christ-like or loving. Mm -hmm. And you get enough of those emails, especially from people who in their email signature, you can tell they're they're playing at your level or above. Mm -hmm. You get enough of those emails. Yeah, yeah. Well, here, let me read this. This is his second tweet. His apology. This was uh, two, three days later. Quote, I want to apologize and ask forgiveness for my tweet on this article. I was not sensitive or careful to the context and content of the statement of the Texas Tech coach. I loathe all aspects of human slavery. They are wicked. I deeply regret my unwise words and the pain they caused. Southern Baptist, Danny Aiken is a Southern Baptist. 
nobody, I, well, I'll, I'll say this, this, this extends beyond Southern Baptist, but the, the thing that a person, white people dread being accused of is racism. Mm-hmm. To be accused of racism, you might as well be an axe murderer. Um, there's no... It's the unforgivable sin. It is the unforgivable sin. So Danny Aiken quotes a Bible verse about submitting to different types of authority using the master and slave example straight out of the Bible. It says master and slave. I realize we have bondservant in the SV, but that word doulos does mean slave. Right. If your translation says slave, it's translated and right. Which has nothing to do with race. Right. In the New Testament time. Paul was not blessing chattel slavery of the American variety. And and back in the uh, Civil War era, slavery era, there, that scripture was abused to promote slavery. This, to- this coach clearly was not trying to do that in any way. And Danny Aiken's first response was correct to say, this is cancel culture. It's ridiculous. However, some people that are very sensitive to that, they took it the wrong way. They did not give the benefit of the doubt. They assumed the worst. And so they started reaching out to Danny Aiken and they're telling him, hey, not only Perhaps, well, perhaps they were saying, "Hey, Danny, that sounded racist. You, you, you were—that was insensitive. You don't know how much I hurt. I mean, I've—I'm I'm familiar with oh, this landscape. Oh, you've gotten lots of these emails, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, it's like you know, I—I I cried. I was—I was laying on my bed mm-hmm. and I was in pain. It's like you—you you hurt me so deeply, and I don't know if I can trust your leadership anymore. Mm-hmm. There might have been uh, threats of uh, student walkout, student mm-hmm. protests. There could have been boycotts of some in some sort protest against Danny Aiken, mm-hmm. calls for his ouster. It could have become an absolute firestorm, dumpster fire, where all of a sudden nobody is looking at the original comment or the context. They're looking at Danny Aiken now as the new Texas Tech guy. He saw his potential job on the line. I don't know if any of this is true. I'm playing out a scenario that we've seen hundreds of times. This is a totally realistic and plausible scenario, and it could come for you. This scenario is worth listening to, listener, because if you have a job, this could come for you. And we want to help you. Yeah. So, so what, what Danny probably thought this was an unforced error. I didn't have to tweet the original article. So he stepped into something, and now he's got to find a way out. And when when this happens to Danny Aiken or to anybody, there is no forgiveness. There is no grace. Yeah. There is only perpetual repentance. You must step down. You must be fired. Or as he did here, you you uh, grovel. Yeah. And you you self-abase yourself, you humiliate yourself, you publicly lay down at the feet and say, I was so insensitive. I cannot believe the unwise words. I deeply regret this. And we could write this letter. Yeah. You know? And this is how all false religions work, by the way. This is not new to the social justice era, you know. Every false religion wants blood. Every false yeah, god right. wants blood, and none of them offer actual forgiveness and reconciliation. So and he gonna... didn't even do anything wrong. No, exactly. That's the, that's the crazy thing. He, he, it was it was the most benign thing. Yeah, that was. Anyway, yeah. so I think I I love this brother in Christ. I want the best for him. I have no. I wish him no ill will. But what he did was unwise. He shouldn't have done it. He should repent should... of his. Yeah, of his repentance. <laughs> We should we should not do that. We should not say something true. We should not have somebody quote the Bible or read the Bible. Us say way to go, and then us apologize for telling the guy way to go. That that is not faithful Christian ministry. That tweet could be written. That apology could be written like about us liking the Book of Ephesians. 
Yeah. I'm sorry I tweeted some of Ephesians. Yeah. I apologize for my tweet of Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul writing a follow-up letter? Ephesians 2, right. not chapter 2. Yeah, Second Ephesians 2.0. Ephes- Second Ephesians. Yes. I deeply regret the pain my, that my words caused you. When I said I am sorry and I yeah. will never do that again. I'm, right. Of course not. And so uh, we, we just were trying to help you see the need for plain spoken speech uh, and for not doing this dance of fear in front of the left that we are all tempted to do. We are all tempted to do it, and we will continue to be tempted to do it, most of us anyways. All right, just a, a little a little bit uh, different arena here I want to dive into in relation to our need for plain speech uh, and how we should apply it. I think we need plain speech in Christian Christianity in America today about what 2020 exposed. So 2020. Are, yeah, yeah. It was a revealing. Yeah, 2020 was an apocalypsis, I think is the word. It's a, it's a I'm pull, pulling, I'm back, pulling to, back the curtain. Yeah. And you're going to see, so the, the book of Revelation, it's called the apocalypse. <clears throat> it's kind of a, I'm going to, God's going to peel back the curtain and you're going to see, man, Satan threw, or uh, Michael threw Satan down. And this is what uh, the heavenly cosmo, the, the heavenly realm looks like. It, yeah. It's like, a, I'm going to show you backstage well, I think in a similar way, 2020 yeah. kind of showed us what was really going on backstage. Backstage within within our own churches and within our own hearts. So these so things were there. These things were we there. Just, they were under the surface. We couldn't see them. Yes. If you if you want a, a different metaphor, uh, the tide went out and we saw some stuff that was always there. It's just the water was covering it. Yeah. Um, and so here are three. Basically, a lot of us were in. Bible preaching churches or evangelical churches, reformed, reformed churches. And yet we had incredibly distinct, divergent uh, beliefs and convictions on at least three things. One, the role of government. Two, the primary audience of a preaching ministry. And three, issues of anthropology, meaning humanness, maleness and femaleness, um, what sin and repentance are, things like that. So we were all, you know, happy in 2020. Uh, here we are, January 1st, watching uh, Jimmy Fallon or whoever does the ball drop now that Dick Clark's <laughs> gone on. Uh, we're, you know, enjoying, uh, this is going to be great. I remember, nobody nobody really knew what was going to happen. No idea what was uh, coming. And then by the time March rolls around, we've got the world shut down. We've got churches like everything else except cannabis stores and strip clubs and casinos. Everything else on on Earth was shut down. Uh, and then by the time we get to the summer of 2020, we've got racial riots in multiple cities uh, in response to the George Floyd killing. So that whole calendar year, or at least from March to the end. It was an election year. It was an election year. We had a lot of things that were the occasion for us realizing, man, me and David French don't have as much in common as I thought. I remember... Telling somebody this this was five years ago, maybe five or more years ago, having dinner with another couple at church and telling them, Oh, David French, read everything. Yeah. Read everything he writes. He's great. I listened to the dispatch and loved it. Uh and, and I'm using him. If you don't know the name, that's fine, but I'm using this public evangelical as he a, writes for the New York Times. He writes for the New York Times now. But I'm using him as an avatar for there were guys who we were pretty sure. We, we are going to be together forever in the same churches. I'm going to read your books. You're going to, you know, I'm going to listen to your podcast. And we realized, oh, my goodness, down in, in areas of our heart that had not yet had to come to the surface. It, 
arenas where we had not had a conflict yet, like what do we do when the government tells a church they can't meet? Yeah. We have really different opinions and convictions, and it's going to be really hard for us to continue to do church and kingdom work together. Yeah. Um, well, churches have to have a certain degree of alignment to maintain their unity, and, and the the boundary markers of churches were, you know, reformed theology in our in our tribe, reformed theology, uh, Calvinistic, yeah, b- view of salvation, a handful of other things. Wait, that was loud. Did you just get an email from. Donald Trump. I don't know what. It, I don't know why I got that. Okay. <laughs> no, that was just. All right. I know I, he, you would be the first person he'd email if you got. Uh, he would. Michael, help. Yeah. Uh, no, I just, I just muted my computer. Huge indictment. Huge, <laughs> huge. Um, anyway, the, the these things, the things that held our churches together before were doctrinal commitments, mission evangelism commitments, church planting stuff like that. And there were other agree to disagree issues. Well, those agree to disagree issues. They were fault lines that cut in the opposite way. Yeah. And so it's not like all the Baptists now disagree with all the Presbyterians and they disagree with all the Pentecostals. It's now like within Baptist theology, within Presbyterian Reformed theology, within there these lines. So there are new alliances being formed where there are new urgency, new issues of urgency. So I might find um, a dispensational Pentecostal. Yeah. Be a person that would be a very valuable ally to me now because of the issues that we care about are things that that this other person would care about. That's just a change. Yeah. 2020 dropped us into a little bit of a different world. Uh, that God, It's God's story. He's telling it. This was not a mistake. I, try, I remind my kids this all the time. You are a character in a story that God is telling. So 2020 was God's providence. He ordained that it would come to pass. When he did, I realized in May of 2020, well, I'm a part of a church here that can't both reopen and stay closed. <laughs> yeah, right. It's got to do one or the other. One and the about other. half this church wants it to stay closed and the other half wants it to reopen. So what do you do when the government, you know, so I'll put, put our cards on the table here. I, I know we both have, we're, we're both holding the same cards. Um, by the time May or June of 2020 rolled around and we realized COVID was not the bubonic plague and it wasn't killing mm-hmm. anything like the majority of people it infected or anything even near that, we, we cannot continue to not meet for the preaching of God's yeah. word. This is a commandment of the New Testament. If this were, you know, well, the I, Black Death, maybe, but... I can give a quick testimony on that. I, my, I remember the feeling that I had. I was watching the news. I was reading reports, seeing, you know, the numbers. And it started with, it started with a bit of reassurance. Oh, you know, COVID may not be as bad as we had initially feared. This is not wiping out a fourth of humanity. And then it, the more I saw, I was like, well, there are, it, there's still some threat here, but how big is the threat? And as time went on, I started to see more. It seems like there are certain people that are pushing really hard for things that don't seem rational. Yeah. And why are we locking down? And then you started to see, well, this is being inconsistently applied. You've got state of California will open restaurants, but close down right. churches. It's this, unloving for a Christian. It's unloving for a Christian to go to service. It's not unloving for this guy to go down and buy weed at the pot store. Yeah, same thing in Vegas. Casinos are open, churches closed. You started to see even more oppressive measures in Canada, uh, Australia. Some mm-hmm. crazy stuff went down. So it was. So I remember feeling. So my my brain was telling me, okay, something is afoot. And the way I felt was, oh dear Lord, I know that my church, people within my church 
Some are very cautious people. Some are, they're just, they, they're scared. They will mask all, as long as Fauci says to do so, they're going to wear a mask. And I have other people that are like, kind of feeling like me. It's like, this is, this is overblown. And so it became at that point a cost because nobody could avoid the issue. You had to choose. Right. Are you going to require your church to mask? Are you going to shut down your church? Are you going to let COVID dictate everything when it, the data does not bear out the level of threat that it was presented as? So I felt this. I felt like I have to make decisions for my church, and I know these will be painful decisions. And as I made decisions, there were a lot of the church applauded it. A lot of the church was upset by it. And they thought, don't you care? Don't you love your neighbor? We should have a vaccine mandate. We should, te- we should publicly tell people you need to get the vaccine. Whereas now that has been de- demonstrated to not have been wise advice. And I thank God that I didn't do it. Right. But it was a, I have so much compassion for pastors, pastors that ended up on different sides of the issue because it was such a confusing time. The thing is now it's like, okay, what is needed now? Regardless of what we did a year or two ago or three ago, what is needed now is we can't. We got to learn from these mistakes, and we need to speak plainly. We about need to what, speak. Yeah. yeah, we can't. We can't mince words. We we can't. We need to say, look. At nobody knew in the early part of 2020 what COVID was, and I might. I I do have a lot of sympathy for especially older people or people who are already a little mentally unstable for whom that whole year of COVID and. All they've got is cable news. They don't have a lot of friends. They don't have a lot of contact with the outside world anyways. And then this thing, I have a lot of sympathy for people who mentally suffered from Empathy? That. You have empathy for them? No, too. I don't. And, and I also have <laughs> genuine sympathy for people, the families of the people who actually died from this virus, the yeah. real virus. Yeah, you know somebody. I do. I, I do. We know somebody from our homeschool from co-op who died. Um, but And I, I think her family would stand, from what I know of her family, I think they would probably stand by everything I'm saying, that... I have sympathy for the people who were uh, impacted by COVID. That said, that said, we need to speak plainly about the fact that there was a real overreach that the government, as it has often done in recent years in the West and in the United States, overstepped. It does not have the right to tell churches not to meet for a year because of a virus that kills something like less than 1% of the people it impacts. It does not have that right. We are commanded to meet and gather by the word of God. Um, And that if we continue to let the government and let the elites of our day govern our churches, we are sinning against God. We need to call it what it is. Yeah. Uh, And until we do that, I think there's a lot of the, the middle of the bell curve evangelical Christianity that is a little nervous about even talking about 2020 and government overreach. Until we confront that and and call call our balls and strikes fairly, yeah. I think we're gonna we're gonna leave ourselves open to have to relive it. Confront it, we must. Yeah, and I think now is the time when we have to work this muscle. I I will I will say and confess freely, this is an area of growth for me because I've lived a long time in fear of saying the wrong thing, offending people because I thought one it was the loving thing to do, two I thought it might be more effective evangelistically to do so. Um, but it became a conviction for me. Like I cannot be silent. I have to speak out. As I started doing so, I started paying a price for it, but I also started to strengthen the muscle. And that's what I would encourage listeners to to think about. It's like, it is a muscle. It is something that you, the more you do it, the more you get used to it, the more you, you get accustomed to using 
certain words that are uncomfortable, of, of moving into conversation that is uncomfortable, of sharpening your skills, of conversing in topics that are uncomfortable. And you are you and you also get used to God. I think God used in, in my life, He used those circumstances to purge my fear of man to a degree. And I think going forward, that's why we're doing a conference about it, is to yeah. is to help promote the idea and to equip people and to say, hey, we can do this together. Let's build coalitions of churches, pastors, networks, uh, organizations that can say we value this because we cannot be caught flat-footed again. Who we were, I think the, uh, we had to develop a theology, or at least go and brush up on a theology of the state mm-hmm. in 2020, and then to speak about it. We, we, we need to be prepared for whenever something like this happens in the future. And we, we ha- I don't want us to be, I don't want myself to be or anybody that's listening to be unprepared to just speak clearly the next time a significant crisis hits. We got to be prepared. Yeah, that's good. And, and, and a needed reminder. Um, I, I'll quickly move past these other two think to these two divergences that were exposed in 2020 that we need to speak plainly about, and then we'll uh, we'll get into our listener question and and end you on a note of hope. Uh, the other two were primary audience of a preaching ministry. My point there is that in 2020, I think a lot of pastors and uh, leaders in church felt the need to talk to unbelievers to talk, you know, about social justice, about the um, your sermons and your, um, you know, written communications that kind of went along with your sermons, they were sort of tailored to, I want to make sure people know, people out there, people out in the culture, people out in the world, I want to make sure that they know that we hate racism and that racism is unjust, and which of course is true, but that's, a preaching ministry is not, is not like uh, something that is designed to get unbelievers to like your church. That's not yeah. the point of a preaching ministry. Uh, just if you want a, a quick biblical example of this, I won't read it to you, but in Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders. These are his final words. The, the evangelist of evangelists, the man who wants unbelievers saved more than any human other than Jesus who's ever lived. He gathers the pastors of the church at Ephesus and he doesn't say one word about evangelism. Not one word. His admonitions in the last time he's ever going to see these pastors is, all of them are are along the lines of feed the sheep, protect the flock, yep. guard this flock. That's his fi- So that tells you if if the evangelist of evangelists made his final proclamation to a group of pastors who were living in a pagan pagan city, we did not shrink if from it, declaring if, anything. Exactly. If his admonition and charge to them was you preach the whole council so that the sheep are protected and you guard them, then that tells you look a pastor a pastor's yeah. primary focus needs to be the protection of his sheep. He cannot worry about what MSNBC watchers think of it. Yeah. I, I, what I see in modern ecclesiology, especially in the big megachurch type of mindset, is your Sunday gathering is a commercial, and you, you, you're, the product that you're selling is your church. And it's, you, you use the Jesus language, but you're selling the church. And because you're—and and what you do for your customer base, your customer base are non-believers. And you say reaching them is our mission, so it is a good thing for us to cater our worship services to non-believers. So everything becomes about reaching the non-believer. The evangelistic mode of the Mm -hmm. mindset is what determines your audience. And and I've I've found, even in my own church, that mindset has become so pervasive, I might have unwittingly encouraged it in ways that I've 
that, that I don't even realize consciously. But we're so concerned about reaching non-believers that even in the one thing that's called a worship gathering, which is only possible for those that are bought by the blood of Jesus. You can't worship Jesus if you're not yet a Christian. You, you cannot worship Jesus uh, unless you're a believer. So this gathering of people where the stated purpose is to worship Jesus, we're still saying even here, those who can't worship Jesus need to dictate how we speak. Right. And that that is a, a it's an ecclesiological uh, f- uh, fault. It, it, yeah. is an, a, it is an inappropriate thing to do, and we're we're robbing our people. So I think like the way I've, I started to notice that the way I would feel speaking, the freedom I would feel speaking in a members meeting, is different than the way I would feel on a Sunday morning. And I thought this should not be. I should not feel like I have to be more restrained, more careful in a worship gathering. I'm not saying be free willing, but in our members meeting, I felt much more free to just say what I thought. And I thought, you know, that that isn't good. Mm-hmm. There, there's a there's a decorum and a formality that comes with the gathered worship, a reverence because of the purpose of the gathering. Nevertheless, when when we're speaking, we shouldn't hold back because we're afraid of what the non-believers in the room would think. Right. And I've heard that so many times from members of my church who feel like, what if a non-believer heard you say that? That, would, that might offend them. That should not get a voice or a vote in uh, the Right pulpit. there, right there in Scripture, according to the Apostle Paul, that is not the governing, that should not be the determining right. factor. Uh, and then lastly, our, our, one that was exp- our third one that was exposed, there was issues of anthropology. So Michael brought it up a little bit, but there is in our culture kind of a, a, a sense that if you are white, if you're of a European descent, you are inherently sinful. You have some like moral stain kind of, I guess it's in your melanin, your <laughs> somehow. Um, and of course, they would we would never say it like that. We would never articulate it that way. But that really is what it amounts to. And you can see it. You can see it in cartoons. You can see it in Disney movies. You can see it. It kind of pervades everything. Uh, and a biblical anthropology will not allow for that. Uh, certainly cultures are real, certainly history is real, and certainly American chattel slavery was wicked, and we we stole people from Africa, brought them over here in chains, and yeah. uh, treated them like animals, and our nation justly was punished by God for it, and it needed repented of, and I'm glad that it is an institution that's dead, chattel slavery. That said, white people don't have some kind of uh, moral guilt imputed to them because their great-great-grandparents moved over here from Poland or something. That's right. not a thing. That's not a um, That's not a biblical teaching, and we need to be aware of that. In 2020, kind of exposed some of us uh, were more hospitable to the Bible's correction on that, mm-hmm. and some of us were less hospitable to the Bible's correction on that and wanted to sort of hold the... Yeah, I remember feeling, like, whenever I spoke about issues of race, just feeling terrified. Yeah. It's scary. And, but I do get courage from knowing that I'm not alone and that there's support. And that's why I think it's important for for Christian pastors, ministry leaders to know one another, to encourage one another, and for there to be support within our churches to where we, we encourage and cultivate uh, an environment where we, we value this and we encourage people to speak plainly. We tell our pastors, hey, please keep doing this. Yeah. That gives me so much courage when I have uh, members of my church that encourage me in that way. That's why if if you can at all come to this thing in in April 13th through 16th. Did I get the dates right? April 13th. 13th through 15th. Clear 13th speech 15th. for a confused date. If you I am telling you, if you can come to this thing, if there's any way that you can get off work or if you're a minister and you live uh, far away, if there's any way you can get your church to buy your plane ticket or 
um, if, if you can't email Michael at current reality podcast at gmail.com and he'll, he'll be sure to cover your, your plane ticket. He's, he's a wealthy <laughs> man. I'm just kidding, but find a way to get out here because I have been to a couple other conferences like this. We have another one here locally called County before country that is similar. Uh, it, it's, it's like-minded when you are around a bunch of other Christians who are genuinely excited about the Bible and God's, the full counsel of God's word and who are waking up to um, the sense that, oh my goodness, this the world is really trying to get me to feel bad about being a Christian. Yeah. When, you, when you're around a bunch of, of other Christians and you just, you breathe in the air of, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so reassuring. Even if you didn't, uh, and you would get a lot out of the talks if you came, but even if you didn't get something out of the talks, just being in that room with other Christians who love the Bible, who love the Jesus of the Bible, who are thoroughly aware of um, how how embarrassed the culture is trying to make you feel about being a Christian, that will be medicine for your soul. I promise you. So please come to this thing. Yeah. Let me before we read our listener question uh, and give a word of hope. Michael can close us with a word of hope. Um, I, I'll, I'll give you Second Corinthians four verse. Uh, uh, let me give you one through two. Let me give you both these two verses. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Corinth, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Because we have not lost heart, because we still have courage, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Those are powerful, true words that hmm. minister to me, and I hope minister to you. All right, let's let's hear our listener question. Um, I am not going to. Uh, I, I had had a little shtick here where I was I was giving us <laughs> joke joke uh, submitters of these questions, but. Uh, we want you to know they're real. We want you to know these are real people. So I won't tell you who, but uh, a, a genuine listener and a, a sweet person sent in this question to us. Michael and Wade, how do we harmonize Jesus' words to turn the other cheek and all of the commands to be kind, slow speak, uh, slow to speak, quick to listen, gentle, etc.? And Jesus is saying that he didn't come to judge. How do we harmonize all of that with speaking directly and standing strong on truth even when it seems harsh, which Jesus did with the Pharisees. And in Revelation, he says that he's going to come back with not nice or pretty words that won't hurt anyone. So she's saying, how do we harmonize the gentle, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and all, all of that sort of uh, behavior that Scripture commends with speaking directly, standing strong on truth, Jesus coming back as a judge, uh, sword coming out of his mouth. How do we harmonize those two? Mm -hmm. We have the Bible's filled with tensions where it'll emphasize one thing in one part of Scripture, emphasize another thing maybe at the opposite, at the other end of Scripture, and it is pulling us in different directions so that we're... And that's why, you know, Acts 20, which uh, Wade referenced earlier... Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Another text he said, I did not declare, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. What the what this listener is writing in is talking about there are tensions in scripture. So on the one hand, you have 
we speak scripture or we speak truth plainly. It's honesty, simple honesty, and we do so. I, I my my conviction is that there are times when you turn up the heat, and there are times when you state it very dispassionately, very uh, stoically, even um, to where the topic itself has its own heat. Um, and there are other times when you know, just like Ephesians or uh, Ecclesiastes, there's a time and a season for everything. I think the, there are, there are a variety of different types of discourse that we can engage in at different times. So these two things that she mentioned, she, I, I, I know the listener, and so I know it was a woman. What she was saying, on the one hand, there is a need to be direct. Um, I think harsh is in bounds when needed, and that's a judgment call. That's a matter of wisdom. And there's not a, a, there's not like a little decoder matrix that it's like, well, in X scenario, use Y tone, but there are times for a harsh tone. I would, I mean, you know, Jesus was livid whenever he turned over the tables in the temple. Um, You're going to be harsh. You walk in your teenage son using pornography. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and that, that's a, that, that's a, that's a good example because there are times when the, there's an urgency that, that has to be communicated. Um, and it is contextual. It's like, I know you, you know me, and I'm speaking to you in this way because of our relationship. There are also times when, because of a particular calling, you see how, you see very direct, very uh, striking, vivid language that would be called harsh in the prophets. You saw it in John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, and times you see this from Jesus, the Apostle Paul used it. Elijah he, to Ahab. Elijah to Ahab. Maybe, maybe Baal's mm-hmm. on the crapper. Mm-hmm. And, right, you know, right. So uh, I think sarcasm, mockery, th- there, there are all, uh, these are all parts of, uh, of human discourse, and they're all in bounds. We have to be wise in how to use them. What Wade and I are advocating for is let the Spirit guide you, let the Scriptures dictate for you, uh, and to learn from that, what, what is the tool that I'm going to reach for in this moment? Um, what we would, what we, we would oppose is what is what goes under the banner of winsome mm-hmm. communication now. And the reason why I don't like that, I think that goes against what Second Corinthians 4, mm-hmm. what, what you just quoted. I think winsomeness, what that, that it's not the same as gentle. It's not the same as kind. Uh, winsome means your feelings get to determine my speech. Mm-hmm. Your feelings get to determine my tone. And so I have to cater my speech to your perception of me. You have a truth allergy, kind of like some kids have a peanut allergy. So I just got to remove this from. <laughs> right, yeah, and that, but that's what winsomeness does. And the the presumption is, if I do that enough, I will win them. So the the, the use of the word, people say, well, Paul said, I became all things to all men, so that by all means I might win some. So he says that's the winsome model. I think that's a misapplication of scripture. We don't win people to Christ by by uh, accommodating their idolatry, their sin, or, and of course, we're gentle. We, we want to, we want to be, be kind, but that, that what, what happens is that, that winsome idea has, has, it dictates everything and it's totally subjective. Mm. And so somebody didn't like what you said. Some say, well, I think you should be more winsome in how you said that. Well, okay. Let's use the Bible's language. Was I did I fail to be gentle where I needed to be gentle? Was I unkind right. where I needed to be kind? And if so, can you can you demonstrate that? What I have found in whenever I you know 
I've had people tell me, Michael, that wasn't very winsome how you said that, when I said it in the most winsome way. And I'm like, your objection is not to—your objection is to my content. You just don't have the courage to tell me directly because you yourself are being winsome. You're, you're applying your own paradigm even to this conversation where you can't even tell me that you disagree with my content. You, you, you blame it on my tone. Um, but I know that you disagree with the content. So it's, it, I think it is ultimately, to use Paul's words, it is disgraceful. It is underhanded. It is tampering with God's word. It is cunning. It is deceptive. And I think the, the winsome model, the winsome mindset, we need to reject that. That doesn't mean we're always harsh, but we have to reject that as a mindset, as a paradigm that governs all speech. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're letting the scripture di- dictate how we speak, then we have wisdom. There are times when uh, Ray Comfort, uh, our, another elder at my church here at Christ the King uh, with Wade and I, his mm-hmm. name is Eric. He quotes this from uh, Ray Comfort a lot, which is, law to the proud and grace to the humble. That's great. Eric is one of the most evangelistically gifted and mm-hmm. passionate believers I've ever known. And engages unbelievers. He is as li- he is as opposite the winsome thing as you could be. Yes. And yet he has more interactions with unbelievers. Yeah. Ev, you go to lunch with this guy and he's witnessing to the waitress and he remembers her name and he's talking to her about her sick kid. And it is because he really loves people. Yeah. He really wants them to know Christ. So Eric would be, I think Eric, he would oppose as strongly as I would the winsome mindset. But I think he breaks the paradigm because he is not only more evangelistically gifted, he does it, he lives it, and he's fruitful. Mm-hmm. There are so many people in our church because Eric shared the gospel with them mm-hmm. and either pastored them back from uh, back into repentance from having abandoned the Christian lifestyle. Um, there are some that, pe- that Eric has personally witnessed to, and they are Christians now because Eric shared, Christ, shared the gospel with them. So you, this idea that winsomeness is the secret sauce that will reach people for Christ is, is bogus. I totally reject it. We need to be plain spoken. And that can mean in the most, in the most kind way, you could, you, could tell, you could tell a person that you're sharing Jesus with, my friend, you are, I believe what you're doing is sinful. I, I, I love you very much. I, I, I don't want you to spend eternity in hell apart mm-hmm. from Christ. I'm appealing to you because I do care about you. I, Repent, believe the gospel. Now, the way I just said that was was earnest and gentle, but direct. I think that is a model for Christian speech that we need to adopt, and the idea that we need to be winsome. We need to reject it. It's become a bad habit yeah. in evangelicalism. It's just a bad habit we got to break. It's bad for people, and it's unfaithful to the Lord. Uh, so answering this question, all right. I think we need to sound more like the Bible and less like Dr. Phil or Drew Barrymore or <laughs> Ryan Seacrest or whatever tame, vanilla, inoffensive, modern American voice you can substitute in there since I'm out of touch and I don't know all the, the cool kids. But we we don't sound much like the Bible in modern evangelical yeah. Christianity. Um I would, I, if you have not done a read through the Bible in a year plan before, I encourage you jump in now. Find one. I use the one on Ligonier's app, but find a read through the Bible in a year program and start right now wherever it says you would be. Probably in the book of Deuteronomy, I'm guessing, in the Old Testament and the book of Luke or something in the New. But just jump in right now. And if you can't do the whole Bible in a year, find one that's just the New Testament. But if you read through the whole Bible 
regularly. So I, I read through the whole Bible every year. I've been doing this now for about, this will be, I think, my seventh year. It's a different translation most years. I just just keep cycling through. And I am only now beginning. And I'm not saying this just as a throwaway line. I am telling you right now. George Mueller read the whole Bible, I think, 100 times through. I'm like on my seventh time of this, just keep making it a part of my annual trip uh, through the calendar. I am only now beginning to really have my speech and my thought patterns be not even sufficiently, but just majority maybe conformed to the way the Bible writes and talks and communicates. And there are, especially when when I first got familiar with much of the prophets in the Old Testament, there were, it, it blew my mind that God mm-hmm. could talk as harshly as he does frequently. I mean, <laughs> often. Listen to the Bible. Listen words. to it. And it, it, I realized that to our 2023, you know, NPR t- type of sentiments, the Bible can seem foreign and alien and off-putting. Why would God have Aiken's whole family slaughtered because this guy stole some some uh, items that were devoted to destruction in Jericho? Why would he have the whole family killed? I don't understand it. And I realized that that kind of thing, we read it and we're, we're just, we blanch at the, but, but it, it needs to change how we think about mm-hmm. God. He is holy. It's, he is holy. Yes. It's a muscle to work. And st- small steps. Yeah. Think of where you are now and think, how can I speak more like Scripture today than I did yesterday? How can I speak more like Scripture tomorrow than I did today? And introduce language, introduce conversations and slowly, you you will find that you you can break this habit. Yeah, a, a great way. I'll, I'll just offer this, since I'm saying you know the answer is to speak more like the Bible. That's my best answer here. A, a great way to try to get this into your day right now. Listen to the Psalms. Find somebody who is turning the Psalms into songs. There are three I could recommend to you right now: Poor Bishop Hooper, My Soul Among Lions, Brian Sauvé. Those are three musical acts that are turning the. Are they on Spotify? On or Spotify, they're on YouTube. We can they're drop on, links to those in the. Yeah, service. absolutely, and we should so. We work My Soul Among Lions, and another guy on staff here at the church, Zach, uh, he works My Soul Among Lions. He listens to them a lot. If you work that into your the bloodstream of your family, you'll just start thinking in Bible terms. My kids love their songs now, and they, they, I, I'm sorry, but they're better than the Jesus is my boyfriend type of stuff that we do in modern evangelicalism, and oh, they'll yeah. just get the Bible's words into your mouth. Yeah. There you go. I went too long. That's our answer for that. Give us a word of hope, and then I'll I'll put the final bullet in this steer's head, and I'm sticking to the mask. No, no, no you, I thought you want to put a bow on it. And no, I'm not touching any let's, more bows. Let's put that, a pretty pink bow on that, the end of this episode, um, or, no, or a rainbow. Effeminate is a new word the Bible put into my mouth, so <laughs> I'm not going to be effeminate. All right. <laughs> okay, a um, couple words of hope. Brothers... Pastors, I'm, I'm speaking to pastors right now. I've, well, I'm speaking to everybody. I'm wanting. To, I have a particular heart to encourage pastors on this topic because you have to speak as your career, as your calling. Pastors, brothers, you're not crazy. the 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 feeling that you have that you need to speak uh, directly to something and you're afraid of it. I that that is that is something that is a it's a common temptation. The scriptures encourage us. Why there's so many admonitions to be courageous, be strong and courageous in the Bible. So you're not crazy. Your desire to fight for truth, to resist tyranny of the emotions, 
to resist the tyranny of the emotions of women and mm-hmm. or of uh, or of whatever the spirit of the age is. That's a good and godly desire to to resist that. Um, practice it. Start small. Do what you can. Be faithful in small things. Second word, truth matters. It can be scary. I get that. It can be scary, but fear God more than you fear man. Um, truth is more important how you feel. As Wade said earlier, feelings are not your Bible. Let the Bible guide your mind and guide your words. Your ministry matters. This is so important. It is so important that we speak. Christ is the Word of God. The Word of God is, um, He is, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Like what we say really matters. Mm -hmm. Your ministry really matters. The things that you articulate from the pulpit and your teaching and your ministry, those things are so important. So surrender your mouth to Christ and let Him speak through you. That it can improve. You, you you can get better as you as you walk in this. Jesus is victorious. Amen. Amen. That that's that gives me so much uh, courage just listening to you. I got chills. Um, I mean it. Uh, I, I I'm picturing all of our listeners here. I'm like I don't even know everyone. Four point six billion of you. That's right. All of the billions of people. We are the biggest podcast in the subcontinent Huge. of India. I found out. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. All of you listeners, whoever you are, um, I, let me talk to you. Assuming you're Christians right now, I'm talking to the born again Christians. I love you if you're a non-believer and you're listening to this. But right now, I'm talking to Christians, and I want to close with a word to you. Your heart is pumping because God has ordained it. You are listening to this podcast because God has ordained it. You are alive today because he has ordained it. You are in a story he is telling. He loves you. He has called you. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit. You are standing on an earth he owns that he bought with his son's blood. It's his world. Don't ever let anybody make you feel like you are a guest in someone else's world. You're going to inherit this thing. Amen. By the grace of Jesus Christ, you will inherit everything. I want you to have courage knowing that God is good and that he is your father and that he is king over creation. Do not ever be embarrassed about him or about what he is doing through you or about what he is offering to the world.